I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to read verses 16 down through 24 and then take a look at those same verses today. All right, before we read it and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we see the Apostle John, really your Holy Spirit, narrowing in, focusing in on the Lord Jesus Christ and particularly his claims, we ask that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts, that you cause us to see exactly what it is he's saying, to grasp it, and to do something with it. So you know where each of us is spiritually. We ask that you would draw us to yourself uh, through this time of meditation, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, John 5, uh, beginning at verse 16. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved brothers and sisters of hope and everyone uh, with us here uh, today, uh, this passage has arguably uh, the most staggering claims that Jesus Christ uh, makes in all of his earthly ministry. Later on in John, he'll make the claims of I am, I am, I am, which were allusions or uh, references to him as Jehovah. But here he just comes out and flat out says it. Pulls no punches, uh, says some of the most profound things about who he is as a person, and then lets it sit. Now at this moment in time, uh, he's already ruffled the feathers of the Jews. They want to persecute him. They want to get rid of him. They want to kill him because he healed on the Sabbath. But Any other person might have said, look, I'm sorry I did this on Sunday. Let's keep the peace. Let's walk away. But he doesn't do that. Actually, he ups the ante. So he doesn't just heal on the Sabbath. He's actually got an out. Look, I'm sorry. Shouldn't have done that. Should have picked Monday or should have picked Sunday or Friday. Sorry, I did it on your Sabbath day. Not a problem. But instead he says, you know what? I'm I'm going to take this one step farther. My father's working and I'm working. Well, now they're really upset because now he's not just healing on the Sabbath. He's saying that he's equal with God. And as if that wasn't enough, Jesus answered them more (laughs) and starts in truly, truly, and just keeps on going and going and going. Because what he's saying is indeed the truth. 
Now, there's a couple people that I'm going to read a couple quotes that they mentioned when they came across this passage. Here's what William Barclay, he's a 20th century Scottish pastor. Um, here's what he said. Jesus knew well that the man who listened to words like this had only two alternatives. The listener must either accept Jesus as the son of God or he must hate him as a blasphemer and seek to destroy him. There is hardly any passage where Jesus appeals for men's love and defies men's hatred as he does here. And J.C. Ryle put it this way, nowhere else in the gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. So with those in mind, let's just walk through this passage with five things. We're gonna notice five things. Jesus is claiming to be equal in work with the Father. He's claiming to be equal in nature with the Father. He's claiming to be equal in life-giving power with the Father, equal in judgment and equal in honor. So those things stand out. I'm really drawing the theme from uh, the Jews, what they said, he's claiming to be equal with God. That's exactly what he's claiming, to be equal with God. And here's how he does it in those five ways. So let's begin with his claim to be equal in work. And I want us to notice verses 17 and 19. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. And then down in verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. I briefly mentioned this last time we looked at this passage that the Jews understood that God worked on the Sabbath through providence. Everything was made through him and uh, made by him. And so in order for everything to be sustained, men can't work on the Sabbath, but God has to work or the, the entire creation will unravel and fall apart. And so they understood that if God came and did miraculous works on Sunday, well, that would be okay for God to do that. He's God. He's got to uphold all of his creation. So when Jesus makes this claim that says, look, my father's working till now and I am working, he's saying, look, I healed on the Sabbath. What's the problem? I'm allowed to do that, which means what? He's claiming to be God. He's saying, look, I'm equal with the father in my work. My father's working till now. I'm working till now. And another way of taking this is Jesus is saying, I've always been working. I've always been working. All creation was made through me. I'm the one who's been upholding all things. All things consist in me to use the language of Paul in Colossians chapter one. So he's definitely making a claim to deity and they understood it. That's why they said, look, he's claiming to be equal with God with that comment. And Jesus is simply affirming this great truth that is found in Hebrews 1.3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power and Colossians 1.17 in him, all things hold together. So Jesus saying, look, yep, regarding work, I am just like the father. My father's working, I'm working. We're doing the exact same work. Now, what's interesting about this is that you have a perfect father-son relationship at work. Now, the worldwide, if you talk about father-son relationships at work, a lot of people will grin and smile and they'll roll their eyes a little bit and talk about all the difficulties of that. But I want, I want to hone in on this and look at how amazing this is. How is it that this father and son work perfectly together there's actually two things I want us to notice. First of all, the son. Take a look at verse 19. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does also. In his work, Jesus never acts independently of the father, ever. Jesus never has told the father from all eternity, his whole earthly ministry all the way until now, and never will ever tell the father, you're wrong on this one, I got it. I'm going a different route. 
Jesus only does what the Father tells Jesus to do. Now, this isn't weakness. This isn't inequality. This is a father-son relationship from all eternity. And the son just does his father's bidding. And that's how this works. That's why the, fathers, the father and son, they, they have infinite harmony. Because Jesus, for his work, as the sovereign Lord of lords and King of kings, also submits himself to his father's will and carries it out. Every jot and tittle, every, every T is crossed, every I is dotted. He does everything all the way as the perfect son. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, picking up on this, talking about just the excellency of Christ, uh, said this, in the person of Christ are, are joined together absolute sovereignty, so he's God, and perfect resignation. Christ, as he is God, is the absolute sovereign of the world. He's the sovereign disposer of all events. The decrees of God are all his sovereign decrees, and the work of creation and all God's works of providence are his own works. Tis he that works all things according to the counsel of his will. The Father's working till now, and I am working. But yet Christ was the most wonderful instance of resignation that ever appeared in the world. He was absolutely and perfectly resigned when he had a near and immediate prospect of his terrible sufferings and the dreadful cup that he was to drink, the idea and expectation of which made his soul exceedingly sorrowful even unto death and put him into such an agony that his sweat, was it were, great drops or clots of blood falling to the ground. But in such circumstances, he was wholly resigned to the will of God. Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The son perfectly performed all the hardest tasks given to him by the father. Think about this for a moment. The father said, go into this chaotic, messy creation that Adam and Eve messed up with their sin. And the son said, not a problem, I'm in. The father said, go be born into a poor family. Leave all these heavenly riches behind. Go be born into a poor family. The son said, I'm in. The father said, go be rejected by our own people. Jesus went. Go without food for 40 days and 40 nights and undergo this temptation. These other people on the earth, they can't do it. They fail even when their bellies are full. Go do what they can't do. And the son said, I'm going. And then the father, the biggest one, go drink the cup of my wrath against these wicked people. Go drink it. Go drink it all until it's all finished. And Jesus said, sign me up. He voluntarily came down to do the Father's will, beloved, and he did it perfectly. The Son never failed at even one point to carry out the Father's will. There's never an instance of disobedience, of insubordination, of self-will. Every last detail of the Father's great plan of redemption, Jesus carried out perfectly. Now, how is it possible for Jesus to do this? Well, we're given a couple reasons in the passage, actually, and they have to do with the Father. So if you look at verse 20, the first reason is this. Notice the word for a connecting word here that's important. Jesus does everything that the Father has him to do. Why? Because the Father loves the Son. That's the first thing I want us to notice. The Father loves the Son. Think of where Jesus is standing right now as he gives this discourse against the Jews. They want to kill him. They've had enough of him already. <laughs> they haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> this hasn't even started. He's got a lot of ministry to do yet. They already want to kill him. And that's God's providence in his life. He knows where it's going to end. And he can stand here and say, the father loves the son. These people want to kill me. My life's going to end on a cross. That's how my earthly ministry is going to end until I'm raised again. And, and yet my father loves me. He knows that his father loves him. He's confident of this. 
Now he's heard it at his baptism when the heavens open. The father says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. He'll hear it at the Mount of Transfiguration. The heavens open and God says, this is my beloved son, my beloved son, my loved son. Listen to him. So Jesus hears this from his father all throughout, but he knows it from all eternity that his father loves him. You know, in our redemption, we rightly think of God's love for sinners. God loves sinners. He desires that sinners come to faith in his son. But what this passage tells us is that even greater than that is God the Father's love for his own son, his own eternally begotten son, the son that he's lived with from all eternity before he even said, let there be light. Before the world even began, we see a relationship between a father and a son that is perfect. The second person of the Trinity has always been the infinite object of the Father's love. And during the whole course of Jesus' earthly life, there was never an instance where the Father's love for the Son faded. Now, the second thing I want us to notice about this is that uh, Jesus does everything that the Father tells him to do because his, his Father loves him. That's first. His Father loves him. Jesus knows whatever my Father asks me to do is out of love for me, even going to the cross. So Jesus never has to doubt his father's intentions, never has to doubt what his father wants for his son. The father wants the son to be honored and glorified. Jesus knows this. And he knows no matter what this suffering looks like, what this earthly ministry looks like, whatever my father asked me to do is actually for our benefit and my blessing. Jesus knows how much his father loves him. But the second reason he can do everything the father has him do is in verse 20, he shows him all that he himself is doing. Now, there's great risk in revealing your plans to other people. You can be mocked. You can be uh, shamed. Um, uh, you, if you love someone, you'll reveal your plans. But most of us, without even thinking about it, might not reveal all of our plans or all of our dreams or all of our thoughts, although that takes place over, over time in a marriage. Uh, beloved, if you tell people everything about you and all your plans, you're open uh, to, to be pushed back against. And so when the father tells the son everything, the, the father's opening himself up to the son saying, I don't want to do that. No, I, don't, I, don't, I actually don't like that plan. Here's a better one. You're opening yourself up to criticism and to being mocked or to, to have people walk away and say, I, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't, I don't want to be around you at all because of your plan. And yet we're told here that Jesus does all the father would have him to do and only what the father would have him to do because he knows the father loves him and because the father's already showed him everything. So before time began, here's a bit of what we're given to understand and what this looked like. The father's plan before the world ever began, okay, son, here's what's going on. We're gonna create a world, an entire universe. And after we do this, the people that we've created are gonna fall into sin. And in order to fill heaven with worshipers, because that's what we desired in the first place, people to glorify us. I've got this plan whereby we can get these people back. They're lost now. They're going to be under my wrath in hell, far away from us, not in heaven worshiping us. So here's, here's the idea. You're going to go down there and you're going to live in the world with them. You're going to take on flesh and you're going to be perfectly obedient to all the law that I'm going to reveal. Every bit of it. They fail you won't fail. And you're going to go down there and you're going to suffer. And you're going to put up with all the shame, all the disgrace, all the mockery that comes your way. You're going to put up with it. More than that, you're going to love people through it. 
And while you're living down there, you're going to love me perfectly above all with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you're going to love your neighbor as yourself every second of the day. And you're going to pull this off. And then when it's all done and you've earned obedience, when you've fulfilled all righteousness, you're going to hang on the cross and here's what's going to happen. At that moment, all the sins of everyone who's going to believe in you and who I'm going to save are going to be put on your account. And you're going to be deep in the red. And you're going to be the off-scouring of the entire creation. You're going, to work, you're going to look worse than any one sinner has ever looked because you're credited with all the sins of all the people. You're going to be the most heinous thing in my sight ever. And at that moment, I'm going to make you pay for every single sin that our people have committed. And we're going to do this for two reasons. Because it means we can still be who we are as, as a God of justice. Because if payment's rendered, we're still God. But we get to have a second thing. We're also merciful. As God, we are merciful. And so we can, we can continue to be God, and we're going to do this. And after all this unfolding the plans to Christ, as it were, whatever this looked like in eternity, we have no idea. Christ said, I'm in. The Father, well, hey, third day you're going to be raised again. Let's not forget that. You're going to ascend into heaven, and you're going to come back, and you're going to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus says, I'm in. All of it. Sign me up. Let's go. What does this look like? It's going to be, happen over a few thousand years. We're going to work this out before we even get to your coming in the flesh. You're going to be prefigured, but here's how it is all going to work. And Jesus loved it. The son said, I'm in. in. In one instance, there were no surprises at all in the life of Jesus. Everything that came his way, the father had already showed him. Oh, he had to learn obedience through what he suffered. We're told that in Hebrews. He had to learn what, it, what is it like to have flesh and obey the father in difficulty and undergo all this pain. He had to learn that. You, you only learn that by experience. You can't teach it in the classroom. Jesus had to come and learn it. But he knew everything before it even came to pass. You know, there are millions of teams all over the world. There are sports teams that try and score more points than their opponents or win, beat them and, and so they can be successful and earn a living or have bragging rights, whatever that may look like. If you're in junior high and high school, probably just bragging rights. There are teams uh, of employees at work that form up to do projects. There are business people that form up to, to establish a business and make a plan go. There are uh, teams of husband and wives that get together and, and support and love one another and, and, and raise children if God gives those to them, etc. There are millions of teams all over the world that team up. Here's, here's the greatest team ever assembled. The Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit's in there as well. It's just not, His work isn't highlighted in this passage. But the Father and Son team get together and almost in their spare time, as it were, they didn't have to create anything. They were in need of nothing. They decided to create a world and save wretches like you and me to fill heaven up with worshipers where we could be in bliss forever in his presence. What team does that? What team sacrifices like that? What father is so loving that he would come up with this plan? What son is so willing to suffer in order to enact the plan? <laughs> And what spirit is so amazing that he'd come into filthy people like us to clean us up and give us new hearts. There is no other team like this. Beloved, if this is how God spends his time, God decided to spend his time doing this, the father-son team. If this is how they spend their time working, what does it tell us about how we as his people should be spending our time? Just one thought. When he says redeem the time, 
I think, God, you really redeemed the time. You've done, you've done the most amazing things that the universe could never fathom with your work and your time. Beloved, God gives us just a couple short years to live. That's it. That's it. You and I go to work for maybe 70 years. Maybe we live to 90, but for the first 10 of those, we're doing nothing, right? Other than eating, sleeping, and studying a little bit. <laughs> Probably maybe for the first 13 or 14. The last 10 or 15 for most of us are going to be in total weakness, sitting in a chair, talking about our aches and pains and being served by other people. So we got how many years in the middle? Humanly speaking, 40, 50, 60, maybe if we have a little bit of a long time to work. What are we doing with our time? Do you see what God did with his time? Filling heaven with the likes of you and me. That all by his grace. What are we doing with our time on this earth? Whose kingdom are we advancing? Well, the second thing that Jesus says, and the rest of these are shorter, is that he's equal in nature with the Father. So verses 17 to 18, my father is working until now and I am working this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, picking up on that language of my father, Leon Morris, a commentator, writes, he was claiming that God was his father in a special sense. He was claiming that he partook of the same nature as the father. This involved equality. So, for example, a good Jew might say, my father in heaven or our father but they wouldn't say my father unqualified. So when Jesus said this, they're seeking to kill him. They understand what he's doing. He's making himself equal with God. He's saying my father, like he's got some sort of special relationship with the father, which he does, but they couldn't stand it. They couldn't fathom it. So even his language is telling them that by his very nature, in his very nature, he is of the same nature as God. That's why they were trying to kill him all the more. You know, on one level, we can understand this. Look, it's a Super Bowl in a week, right? For those of you who are football fans or maybe not, uh, Tom Brady's one of the quarterbacks in the Super Bowl. I think he's got like six Super Bowl rings. He's, been, he's 43 years old. He's the same age as me. I, there's no way I could ever, you'd have to kill me before you put me on a field taking hits from those big guys. But he's still doing this at 43 years old. Now imagine at a press conference, uh, someone walks in who's unathletic and someone who uh, has never picked up a football in their life, and they said, yeah, Tom Brady and I, we're, we're basically the same person. We're of the same nature. You know, the reporters would just vilify that person, whoever that was. Who are you? <laughs> you think you can throw a football? You think you're Tom Brady? Saying, yeah, we're basically, there's basically no difference between he and I. He, he has his work, I do my work, we're basically the same. Now, on the surface, it looks unbelievable, right? Until you start peeling back the layers. The guy's got two arms and two legs, just like Tom does. He's got a heart, he's got a soul, he's got a job that he goes to do. He's got people he loves. Actually, there really is no difference between him. In his very nature, there's no difference between this unathletic person and this maybe greatest of all time athlete across all sports ever. No difference at all. When you hear Jesus' claims at first, they sound so astonishing. The Jews were in that same portrait. There's no way that can be true. And you start peeling back the layers, you're like, Wow, this, this has to be true. This is true. He, he really is God. And that's what the Jews are wrestling with in their unbelief. Who, who does he think he is? But you pause for a moment, you meditate, and you find out that Jesus is God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He's God manifest in the flesh. 
So what Jesus is saying, beloved, means he's either a delusional lunatic or he really is who he says he is. And he goes on to say he's also equal in life-giving power, verses 20 to 21. Greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Now that phrase, greater works than these so that you marvel, uh, let me paraphrase that. Jesus is saying, look, you ain't seen nothing yet. You guys have a problem with me now? You just, just wait a minute. Um, uh, put me on your schedule over the course of about the next year and a half, and you're going to see stuff that's going to blow you away. I'm going to feed 5,000 people with a couple fish, a couple loaves of bread. Lot, that's lots of people, and there's going to be leftovers. You're going to see some great works. I'm going to heal a man born blind, ain't never seen a day in his life. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the tomb, from the tomb that stinks now because he's been in there so long. He wasn't dead. He was all the way dead. I'm going to raise him from the tomb. I'm going to be crucified. And on the Thursday, guess what? You're going to see me come out of the tomb on that third day. Note it. I'm going to ascend into heaven visibly. How's that going to be for some great things? And the greatest thing, which he alludes to in the following verses, I'm going to come back to judge the living and the dead. We haven't even started, is what Jesus is saying. We haven't even started. I am equal in life-giving power. And Jesus said, I and my Father are just getting warmed up, as it were. Now, every Jew would have believed that God can raise the dead to life. That's nothing astonishing. Second Kings 4, through Elisha, God raised up the Shunammites' uh, woman's son. Uh, in 2 Kings 5, 7, the king of Israel said when Naaman showed up, he said, am I God to kill and make alive? That's just a simple confession. Everybody knows that God alone can give life and take life. All the Jews believe that. But when Jesus said, I have the power to give life as well, the son does. He's saying, again, I'm God. Unequivocally, right in their face. They all know God gives life. Jesus says, I can give life. You do the logical deduction. If God alone can give life, and I'm saying I can give life. What does that make me? God? Exactly. That's what he's saying. And they were figuring this out all on their own. If the Jews were really interested in finding out if Jesus was the Christ so they could believe in him for eternal life, you know what they would have done? They would have said, okay, that's fine. We'll wait and see. The first time you raise somebody to life, we'll believe in you to everlasting life. But what took place each time he did it? They weren't believing in fact, they grew in their opposition to him. When the greatest miracle ever took place, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, arguably the greatest miracle ever, when that took place, what did so many of the Jews do? They made up a story to cover up that fact. <laughs> Why didn't they believe? Look, he just came out of the grave, out of the tomb. He's been in there three days. He raised Lazarus out of the tomb. Why won't you believe? It just shows, it shows all of us the hardness of our hearts before we come to Christ. But that's where our hearts were. That's what the human heart is by nature. God, you can show me a thousand of the most amazing life-giving miracles, and I'm just gonna say this, do one more. You haven't convinced me yet. And Jesus is gonna do this over and over again, and yet so many won't believe. So if you and I are sitting here today, as Christians, we have one person to thank. Well, we have three people to thank. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have one God to thank for giving us life. The Father can give life, the Son can give life, and the Holy Spirit, we confess him as the Lord and the giver of life. We've got those three people to thank for the rest of our lives. If you're sitting here a Christian, 
Sure, maybe we should thank our friends or our Bible teacher or our parents for being the instrument. But at the end of the day, our friends, our Bible teachers, our parents can tell us about Christ until they're out of breath. And still we won't be saved unless God shows up to do this. So if you have life this very day as a Christian, we have God alone to thank. And then two more things. Jesus says, look, he's equal in judgment. Verses 22 to 23, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So the son is judge. Jesus bears this out in Matthew 28, 19, when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The apostle Paul in his sermon in Acts 17, verse 31 says this, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And then 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the judge of all the earth. The father has given him that work to be the judge on the last day. The first time, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Second time, he's not coming to save the world. He's coming to judge the world. So first time, he comes as Savior. Second time, he comes as judge, which means, beloved, every single one of us will be sitting across the table, as it were, face to face with Jesus. Every human being will. He's the judge. On that last day when judgment comes, it won't matter what our parents thought of us. It won't matter what our friends thought of us. It won't matter what our bosses or employees thought of us. It won't, none of that will matter. That won't matter at all. The only thing that, you know, I don't want to say, the only thing that will matter will be this. Do you know Jesus, the one that you're standing face to face with now and who's your judge? There's no jury. It's just you and him. Do you know Jesus? Or maybe better put, does he know you? savingly? Does he know who you and I are? Does he know you in your sin, confessing it, admitting it, falling down before him, saying, Lord, forgive me? Do you have a personal relationship with him? He's the one that every human being is going to be looking at eye to eye, toe to toe, face to face. He's the one we're all going to have to deal with, beloved. So one of the biggest thing, the biggest thing every human being has to deal with is what do we say about Jesus Christ? Who do we say he is? It doesn't matter just for this life. You know, you know what it really matters? For the next life forever. It matters in this life. But beloved, it's going to matter forever who we say Jesus is. The most consequential relationship for any human being anywhere in the universe is one's relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the judge and we'll all face him. Do you know him? Does he know you? And finally, Jesus says we're equal in honor. Verses 22 to 23, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son in order that, or that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So the father's will and desire is that his son would be honored. The father is doing this for honor for himself, but he's doing this for honor for his son as well. And what is, it would have been amazing to stand there and hear Jesus say this because, you know, when angels showed up and when the apostles went out, men would sometimes bow down and worship them. And what did they always say? 
get up. <laughs> uh-uh. Don't, you're not worshiping me. Oh, no. <laughs> I am not the gods come down. I'm simply a messenger. Get back on your feet. Jesus is standing in front of them saying, you, you, you say you honor the Father, then you'll honor the Son. In other words, why are you still standing? Where's my worship? Unabashedly, unashamedly. You say you honor the Father, everyone who honors the Father, you'll honor the Son too. In other words, you should be bowing and kneeling. Angels and men tell people to stand up. Jesus is saying, if you really understand who I am, you'd be down. You'd be kneeling. Again, claiming to be equal with God. Let me just close with this. Muhammad did not say, I deserve all the honor and worship all it deserves. Joseph Smith did not say, I'm the creator God. Jewish rabbis have never said, I am Jehovah. Most of them won't even use his name or all of them won't. But Jesus stands in front of these people and says, I'm God. I'm not someone who can point you to God. I am God. I am God in the flesh. Audacious, audacious claim. It caused John Duncan, an 1800 Scottish preacher, in one of his works to write this, Christ either first deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or number two, he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or three, he was divine. There's no getting out of this trilemma. It's inexorable. And C.S. Lewis said in famous words, I trust, I'm just going to read it to you. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. So Christian, you don't believe Jesus is a liar. You don't believe he's a lunatic. You and I believe he's Lord. So the only thing left to do is worship him. Worship him because he's God. And for any who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, uh, and, and for people we, we might meet who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if, if someone thinks that Jesus is a liar, they can certainly continue in that thought. One day they'll discover that actually they themselves were the liar and Jesus was telling the truth, that he is the truth. And it's possible to go through the rest of your life thinking Jesus is a lunatic, he's crazy, he's a bit deranged. That's an option. But just know that if that's what we think, the day will come and we'll find out that we were the ones deranged. We were the lunatics. We were the crazy ones who wouldn't believe in a savior who willingly lays down his life for his enemies in order to give them eternal life and all they have to do is believe. But we'd be the crazy ones not to believe in him. But if anyone who doesn't know Jesus thinks maybe for the first time that Jesus is actually Lord, then here's what you do. It's in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. How do I pass from death to life? How do I, how do I receive this great gift of eternal life? You believe the words of Jesus. You repent of your sins. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you're friends with the judge. 
and you receive this great gift of eternal life. It's that simple. For anyone who's sort of indifferent to Jesus, let me just close by saying this. You've never really understood what he said. For anyone who's indifferent to Jesus, you've not really understood what he said. He's saying, I'm God. I'm in charge. I'm the judge. You're going to have to face me. People who hate Jesus actually start to understand his claims. People who hate Jesus vehemently, like the Jews, they understand what he's saying. People who love and worship him understand what he's saying. People who are indifferent haven't understood it yet. And so if you're indifferent, study him, get to know him, find out who he is. And I hope that you'll trust in him and believe in him for eternal life. Let's pray.